Hello and welcome to Security Insights. I'm your host, Gunnar Peterson. I'm CISO at Forder, which is a trust platform for digital commerce. And today I'm excited to say that our guest is none other than Allison Miller. Welcome, Allison. Hello, Gunnar. It's good to see you again. Alice and I go pretty far back. She is a seasoned business and technology leader, having spent 20 years scaling teams in technology, cybersecurity, e-commerce, and financial services. She was most recently CISO Vice President of Trust at Reddit, where she led engineering, operations, policy functions across security, privacy, assurance, GRC, that's governance, risk, compliance, and trust safety domains. Allison has led technical teams in product development, cybersecurity, risk analytics, payments, commerce at Bank America, Great Bank, Google, Electronic Arts, Tag Meet Me, PayPal, eBay, Visa International. Unfortunately, we didn't get to work together at PayPal. That would have been fun, but we, we were there at the cool. same time. Yeah. Uh, and, and in addition to all of this, and I think this is relevant for our conversation today, Allison's background includes research and study in economics and business as well as technology product development. She holds an MBA from UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and Strategy and Marketing, a BS in economics from UPenn's Wharton. Uh, that reminds me of Adam Shostak's quote that uh, security people are from Mars and business people are from Wharton. Um, <laughs> and she, on top of that, she attended John Hopkins University graduate program in applied economics. So we are very fortunate to have Allison Miller as our guest today. So Allison, Let's dive right into the topic kind of from your last bullet points. You've worked in both information security teams and fraud teams. How would you contrast the relative mindsets of effectively operating in those two different domains? So in a, in a shorthand way, what I'll sometimes characterize the InfoSec mindset as dealing with code level and configuration level vulnerabilities as compared to fraud, which maybe to oversimplify a little bit, tries to deal with business logic level vulnerabilities. Is that sort of the right opening track and what other factors would you add into this? Yeah, I think I've used the language of, I live my life at layer eight. <laughs> so seven being all about application security and then level eight is you make an assumption that the application layer and all layers below it are working as intended and there's still work to be done in that meaty layer eight uh, but there are other sort of differences between those teams i think are really interesting uh, one is that i think that a lot of cybersecurity analysts they really want to understand the why. They care about the motivations. They care about attribution, who's doing the thing. Um, and I think that in fraud, that's less interesting to folks who are trying to kind of play that game. Um, when you're working on something like e-crime, which is kind of a cybersecurity relevant um, field, you're maybe trying to collect evidence that you would share with law enforcement so that they could go after whoever it is and knock on their door. Whereas if you're in fraud, what you are trying to do is reject a transaction and move on. There's no, there, there's analytics that's done, but there's a lot less curiosity about 
rings or is this economically motivated or what have you. And of course, when it comes to fraud, it's very often economically motivated. <laughs> so it makes it a little more straightforward. And so if if you've spent your life in layer eight where the users are living, does that mean the fraudsters are living in layer nine? Is that is is that what we should is that how we should think about it, you think? Yeah, the, the pew pew map is between layer nine and layer eight, I guess. I, I think the OS yeah, <laughs> I think the OSI OSI <laughs> diagram left off a couple layers on the top, eight nine eight, nine. I don't know how many where where the robots fit in is ten or I don't know. So yes. Bringing these two worlds together, I want to I want to drill down a little bit on some things out there in the industry. Is people posit that you, if you unite your fraud team and your cybersecurity teams, that that that's a logical next step because fraud often picks up where classic information security control, like authentication or access control, sort of end, and that's sort of where the fraudster begins. Does does uniting those two domains makes practical sense? And what are the kind of you know pragmatic challenges to actually carry that out in terms of teams, tool, and processes? If indeed it is, even is a, a wise course of action. Right. So my knee jerk reaction is no, but <laughs> the economist in me says the right answer is it depends. So I myself am a boundary spanner, you can tell from my resume, and I have worked in a few environments where it makes sense to have those teams kind of sitting next to each other. But um, some of the operating differences, I think, are, I think fraud teams are more likely to, for example, build their own tools. Mm. <laughs> And while there is certainly been a lot of depth and investment in security analytics, I think that the way fraud teams think about data and security teams think about data is a little bit, it's a little bit different. And there's the baseline level of data science or statistical skills that's expected of a fraud team is markedly different than that of a cybersecurity team. Um, so on, so on that on that one in particular, because I think that's an interesting point, like anomaly detection, if you say it to a cybersecurity person, it's going to mean, oh, you know, a, a, a weird kind of login event that I could, a, a th an individual thing that I might look for, whereas a fraud analyst is going to, you know, crunch through a Jupyter no notebook and anomaly detection is going to mean hundreds of lines of Python or something to get to you know, you know, three digits behind the decimal point level of precision. Is is that kind of where you're going? When Yes, um, yes, ish. So I think uh, this comes again to the I find that cybersecurity analysts really want to understand the why and the fraud analysts just want to find the thing and kick it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I think that there's less leisurely anomaly 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 analysis that goes on on the fraud side than on the cybersecurity side but that comes to kind of the second market difference which is um the the impact of a wrong answer mm -hmm. so in cybersecurity uh everyone is trying to avoid that um true true negative they're trying so they're willing to cast wide nets 
but they're living in a situation where they can't necessarily interrupt something happening in the system. So there's lots of monitoring and viewing. On the fraud side, folks are a lot more comfortable with false positives and false negatives because there's a dollar cost associated with getting it right and getting it wrong. And so in a lot of organizations, well, in financial services and payments, and to a certain extent in retail, it makes sense for a fraud prevention team to sit next to marketing, not cybersecurity, because it's in sort of, it is in partnership with marketing or product management that folks would figure out how do we, how do we strike the right trade-off and they can quantify it between user experience and the cost of fraud. And that is the bread and butter of credit risk and fraud risk is it's there's it's one of those things where you can optimize, (laughs) you can find you can find kind of the right place on the horizon and you can negotiate with your marketing team. Hey, it's a new product. We want to get folks using it. We want them to have an awesome experience. So maybe we let a little fraud through or this is a very risky area where we are not as concerned about user experience, we're gonna tamp that down because it will cost us a lot of money if we get these things wrong. And in cybersecurity, there have there still aren't, there still isn't that level of nuance in the discussion about false positives and false negatives because, um, you know, I, I don't like the adage that, um, offense only has to get it right once and defense only has to miss it once. I don't like that, but I do think some of that mindset is wired into how we, how we think about detection on the defense side. That is, that's, just, yeah, it just doesn't live over in risk necessarily. Yeah. It's a really interesting set of observations there. And I think, um, you know, sort of coming from a cybersecurity world, you think of, well, here are the things we can teach the fraud people about how security actually works. But I think one thing that uh, beyond the sort of statistical big data type mindsets that security teams can learn from fraud is is kind of like you said, I, being closer to the business is is never a bad thing. Um, so th- yes. that's, that's a mindset um, that I think cybersecurity teams you know, it, it are all on a journey to get closer over over time so that they're protecting the things that are most valuable to the business. Um, in, right. in terms of like day-to-day collaboration uh, between fraud and infosec teams, you know, m- Monday through Friday type type um, of collaboration, what, what are opportunities that those two teams can work together on to stop fraudsters from cashing out? Are, I mean, login and payments are good starting points, right? Right. So um, <laughs> where does value move in your system? Uh, now, I, I, I did, before we kind of jump to that, I did want to uh, set some context that where I do see those teams, fraud or anti-abuse connected with a cybersecurity team, for example, is in the area of identity. Uh, when I was at PayPal, one of the things that we talked about around consumer fraud is that what we're really trying to analyze is identity and intent. And so that point of, consu- of, of identity, whether it's consumer identity or business identity, establishing identity on a platform is sort of a really critical risk point. And so um, how, how account creation works, what's asked for to help build out that profile. Um, 
And then you mentioned login classic <laughs> after you verified an identity or established an identity at sign up, then you are <laughs> authenticating them when they log in. Uh, definitely another inflection point transactions and then transactions so that so transactions and a payment system or in retail or your credit card provider, you're watching the transactions go through. Clearly, that is the, the big point. Um, and where there there depending on your platform you might have things that would be considered almost invisible transactions meaning there's not necessarily dollars and cents associated with them but value is moving so an ex an example of this might be on a game platform you might have folks have sort of digital assets that they're able to trade amongst each other amongst themselves and if those digital assets do carry value with them then there may be there may be sort of economic motivation associated with moving them and then the place where i usually want the <laughs> the, the 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 tightest triggers are when value exits the system because it's one thing when value goes from one account to another within some kind of construct whether it's video games or a payment system or a bank but then when they leave the institution um, that's where things get interesting so i've had some experience with that in payments and then also um, some digital platforms do have value that can leave um, and that is definitely a place where you want to watch yeah, so turn, turning all of the fraud actor actions into something that is liquid is is a is a fascinating checkpoint to to play against. Um, I I think you you hit on, of course. I think our one of our share one of our many shared interests, which is identity being the perimeter that that really needs as much scrutiny that any both cybersecurity teams and fraud teams and, and frankly you know e commerce teams, product managers, etc. can can throw at it. Um, and I think that goes down into even subtle things. Like what, what do you think when you think beyond, uh, creating accounts and logins and payments, when you think about smaller butterfly wing type things like profile updates that a fraudster might be doing or turning off notifications so that, uh, they can act in a more unfettered way and have lateral movement, you know, not lateral movement inside of a network, but lateral movement inside of an identity. Um, are, how, how do you think about uh, tr tracking that kind of behavior? And, and is that something that would be a fraud team's, uh, you know, prerogative to go after or a cybersecurity team? Or should they be working together? Like, how, how does that work? Sure. So I think uh, I think a lot of what you're talking about are things that might occur during an account hijacking, right? Um, once someone has defeated your login controls, whether due to some <laughs> weakness of detection around login or simply they have all of the credentials, they have all of the right credentials, um, then what do they do to A, um, maybe lock out the legitimate user, um, B, funnel funds or fun funnel uh, activity over to one of their exit accounts, or just simply leverage the credentials that are on the account to transact. There's lots of things that could be could be done. So yes, I think profile changes, uh, especially th this is where things are sort of fun. It's it's never 
it's never just a change. It's the compounding effect of behaviors before and after. <laughs> so um, I, when I worked in fraud, one of the things that I liked to um, uh, try, try to instill into the work I was doing was think then act continue collecting information. Something happens, it's interesting. Keep keep watching and then and then you act when you have enough information and before value moves. Um, that improves the chances that you're gonna get it right and also um, helps you learn some things that may help someone else from a different account from being victimized, for example. Fascinating. A, a colleague who works on this problem at rather large scale said to me last year, um, he believes we're close to hitting hitting the limit of what we can do with just AI ML and that the future is really about networks and sharing of information. And so I'm curious what your implication, what the implications are to you on as someone who's run teams in both cybersecurity and fraud on the tooling and information shared, sharing the visibility you know, how do you how do you use that? What's required for that to integrate to get that shared visibility? Is it threat models? Is it is it uh, da databases? Like, what is the you know? Is it, it what what is the uh, the first steps in your thinking on on bringing those two teams together from a tooling uh, perspective? So, uh, so uh, when you're talking about information sharing, you're talking about information sharing. Within the four walls of a, the, within the companies? virtual four walls of a of a company, yeah. Well, I think that uh, I, I call me a skeptic <laughs> uh, because because uh, in my experience running blended teams, the people who were knocking on the door from a denial of service attack point of view were a different set of people than the ones who are trying to launder stolen financial information or conduct credit card fraud might even be different from the ones who are hijacking accounts and then pushing spam. Right. So if the it where where I do think it makes sense is if we were seeing evidence of what I would describe as sort of layered attacks um, where somehow there was an attack that where at layer eight where things are working as intended that somehow enabled a user to pivot and then gave them the ability to start pushing into something that would be a more classic cybersecurity um, cybersecurity type attack. So I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical just because I know we, we have supply chains of attacks, but we also really do have differently motivated actors and their behaviors show up in different ways in different places. And the logs at my cloud provider are different than the um, records of transactions or the logs around uh, application use at a, at a sort of a user level. That said, I do think that where where these things come back together are around some of these key flows. I think login is a great example of the folks who build the login flows in product may not be, for example, identity experts. They may not know, they may not know the ins and outs of all of the different key management that you would want to do or best practices 
around login security. And so that's a great place for collaboration, but that's more around collaboration on defensive design than on um, detection. I think that knowledge sharing between teams who are who are looking at similar problems is always a good thing. I'm just not sure yet that we are seeing yet a lot of um, a lot of attacks moving from layer eight into layer seven from layer seven into layer eight maybe um, but those have very <laughs> very weird fingerprints that you usually are able to see at layer seven um, and uh, that that's very interesting and thank you for bringing up identity too as a potential glue layer there uh, Allison Miller, this has been merely fascinating, and thank you for your so much for your time today. Um, one last question, if we can shift gears at the end here. Um, how much does a yoga practice help with dealing with the constant challenges that you that we all face in fraud security in the fast moving world we're in these days? Well, Thanks for asking. For those who are wondering why Gunnar asked me that question, it's because a few years ago, I got certified as a yoga instructor because I was interested in the therapeutic benefits of yoga for mental health and stress management, which I found would could be especially useful to folks who are in sort of first responder situations like folks who work in cybersecurity and maybe fraud management. But incident management, I think folks can use some of the tools. What I have found are there are just some simple tricks. One, it's just great to stay active and have something happening <laughs> in your personal life that you can kind of invest in, in overall wellness. I think that helps increase resilience headed into situations of high stress, but also really simple things. I know myself that when I am, when I am stressed or tense, I'm more likely to hold my breath. And the fact that I have studied yoga uh, sort of has taught me to automatically in situations where I find I'm having racing thoughts and I'm having a hard time settling to just stop and kind of breathe and um, try and ground a little bit, like feel a little more connected to my body and force my muscles to relax and then get back into it. That is uh, that is good advice for everybody. Uh in cybersecurity and fraud and, and well beyond that. So thank you. Thank you for those uh, words of wisdom, Allison. And thank you again for joining today. It was a great conversation. All the best to you in the future. Thanks, Gunnar. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on.